welcome to another week of the DC Wash-Up. I'm Brooke Wiley. We're missing Roscoe Whalen. He's a... Uh, oh, should I tell everyone where he is? Yes. <laughs> Roscoe can't join us today in the studio because he is on a cruise and we hope he's having a wonderful time he's in the Caribbean. Exactly. <laughs> 28 going on 70. Not, not, not yeah. that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's, there's anything, wrong. anything wrong with that at all. I'm joined in the studio today by Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel. Hello. Stephanie Marsh, North America correspondent. Hello. And Connor Duffy, another North American correspondent. Hello. Today we're going to get started with events that have overshadowed the week here in Washington and across America, and that is the violent clashes between white nationalists and anti-fascist protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, over the weekend. Zoe, first to you, take us through how this unfolded. Uh, Well, it started to build up on Saturday morning uh, in the sense that the uh, groups who had organised this Unite the Right rally, and there are quite a few of them, they're fairly fragmented, but uh, they're made up of white supremacists, white nationalists, uh, groups like the KKK and people who self-describe as neo-Nazis. This was a planned event. It's something that had been organised basically through social media. And it's important to note that although I say they're fragmented groups, these groups have been mobilising significantly over the last couple of years. And certainly the growth of social media has made it easier for them to become more cohesive. So they had planned this event in Charlottesville for some time. They had predicted that it would be uh, the largest uh, pro-white rally in the US ever. Uh, Most of the people from uh, those groups who came to town were not from Charlottesville, although there were some locals. Uh, And as I said, it started building up on Saturday morning Um, with people arriving for the rally. The thing is that it had already become obvious even on Friday night that the event could be heated uh, because some of those people who'd already arrived in town descended on the campus of the University of Virginia uh, where they uh, surrounded students who were uh, effectively defending uh, a statue uh, of a Confederate general. Uh, And these white nationalists and white supremacists et al. who arrived were carrying, quite bizarrely, uh, garden tiki torches, flaming torches, uh, a symbol of the KKK, obviously, but something that was sort of made much fun of that they'd picked these tiki torches up from hardware stores. Um, But it wasn't a funny event at all. And uh, much of the footage that's been around of what happened on the Friday night shows these people chanting... um, pretty nasty slogans about Jews, um, about white rights, um, and in part clashing with those students who were defending the statue. So it kind of evolved from there uh, into a fairly heated confrontation uh, between those white nationalist groups and the counter-protesters, if you like, on the Saturday. And that was everything that built up to uh, eventually a car being driven into a crowd of counter-protesters and a woman being killed. Steph, you were in Charlottesville to cover this story. What did it feel like? What was the energy like in the town? Oh, it was grim. I got there on the Sunday, so the day after that woman was hit by a car, and it was really, it was tense. It was genuinely tense, and, you know, you do this job for long enough and you get a bit hardened to stuff, but I felt really uncomfortable. We got there... 
there was a sort of melee at the city hall where Jason Kessler, the blogger who organised the rally, the far right blogger, tried to give a press conference to denounce the police um, and the city. And he was essentially overrun within a couple of minutes by um, protesters screaming things like indict the murderer um, and Nazis go home and things like that. And then we sort of just came across this group of essentially um, people had sort of started talking on a bullhorn, just kind of getting their stuff out. And there was sort of, it seemed like the premise was for people to be able to share their ideas, but it certainly descended into a screaming match and this unite the right guy kind of getting pinned up against the wall by Black Lives Matter people and cops just standing there staring Um guy walking past with the name 16 seemed to be from one of the leftist groups like it was pretty tense and heated and vile and that carried on to the Monday where you saw some of those who were facing charges for things like failing to disperse and uh, stuff arriving at the courthouse and because you've got people from both sides going to this tiny courthouse in this tiny city um, there was sort of confrontation and conflict there and there was just so much screaming and so much anger and um, no one was listening to anyone else. Everyone was just becoming more emboldened um, and it just was pretty nasty. And interestingly, like Charlottesville is in Virginia, which was the south, um, but it's a very progressive city. It's home to the University of Virginia. It's a predominantly Democrat town. It you know, voted the county, Albemarle, um, voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton. So so for many of the people to have these outsider far-right groups descend on their pretty quiet, quaint city, the home of Thomas Jefferson, was really rattling, I think. And it's not the first time we've seen these alt-right or these white supremacist or white nationalist groups gathering in the United States. There's been some pretty provocative images, I feel like, over the last certainly the last 18 months that I've been here, but even before that, where there are deep racial divisions here in the United States. But this this felt different, I think, in that it was a real boiling point. Connor, were you surprised by how this was handled at a political level? What's your reaction to what played out after the riots? Well, firstly, um, like Steph said, you do get a bit hardened to things, but even just watching it from afar, um, it was incredibly upsetting to see not just that graphic image of the car ploughing into people, but the more mundane images of people sort of freely walking the streets with Nazi flags as if that was nothing at all to be so openly displaying those symbols of hate that you you know would hope that no one would embrace, but if they do, it would be done in a, you know well out of sight and away from influencing people but to have that out on the streets like that was just incredible and then shortly after I think it would have been within a couple of hours of the car ploughing down the street we heard from President Trump and it was not the kind of speech I think anyone was expecting this was his first initial response to the violence there where he talked about um, many sides being to blame for what was going on when to the casual observer, it seemed like a pretty clear-cut example of um, you know people being targeted and a, a person being killed and at least another score, 20-odd people taken to hospital with serious injuries. Yeah, the president was widely condemned for that statement from both the left and the right. Zoe, there's been a lot of fallout for the president. He's needed to defend himself now. He, he tried to make amends with a prepared statement on the issue using auto cues or teleprompters. Uh, where he specifically named the KKK and white supremacists. But then we saw another take on it from the president when he reverted to blaming both sides. Take us through some of the highs and lows of the president's response to this and how it's being received. 
I think one of the points that I've seen made that I think is quite relevant is that the president is seeking to focus on the actual violence that played out on Saturday and in that sense spreading the blame across both groups in a sense saying, well, both groups were armed to some extent, both groups were spoiling for a fight to some extent, rather than looking at the underlying reason for the event in the first place, which was to promote racial hatred. It was a pro-white event. The only reason the counter-protesters were there was because the far-right groups had organised the rally and they were heavily armed. I mean, there were um, reams of television pictures of these uh, white nationalists walking around with M16s and AK-47s, many of them dressed in military fatigues. So not to say that the um, hardline left-wing element that was there was not also um, armed and did not have some violent imperative, but many of the people were there were there to push back against racism uh, and to say, we don't want these racists in our city, we don't want Nazis in our city, we do not accept your rationale in any way, shape or form, um, which is the starting point for this event. So that's why uh, Donald Trump's seeming inability in the first instance to come out to condemn those uh, pro-white groups, those race-hate groups, was not received well. Uh, The thing is, when he eventually did give a prepared statement via an auto-cue three days later, uh, it was given seemingly reluctantly. It wasn't um, sort of from the heart. As I said, he was reading from a teleprompter. Uh, So that wasn't really accepted as sincere either. Therefore, the next day, uh, Donald Trump seemed to just boil over with frustration about, firstly, the fact that he'd been forced into a position where he had to alter his statement to name up the groups that were involved, but that even when he did that, that was still not acceptable to his critics. So he reverted to his original point of view, which was everyone's at fault here. Uh, And that's caused all sorts of ructions as you say, members of his own party, um, members of the opposing party, members of the community, business leaders uh, who have dropped out of his business councils uh, and which have now been dissolved, uh, a general sense of um, the fact that the way that the president has responded to this has not been acceptable. And, Steph, why do you think this has been such a difficult dilemma for the president. I mean, why why not just come out and say oh, Nazis are bad? in Donald Trump's head. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And it could be because he likes to do what he knows people don't want and he likes to be the um, the naysayer to the Republican Party, to widespread opinion, um, to the media. Um, but it is also relevant that pe- some of these people are his base and it's it's a very complicated cause, I think, that was behind what happened in Charlottesville with this rally. You've got some people who are flat out racist. Um, You've got some people who are just far right, neo-Nazis, white supremacists and all that. Then there's some sort of a more moderate section that are essentially saying the white man's not getting a fair deal. Now, that was a big part of Donald Trump's campaign. 
and with them all mixed together, it's really hard, I think, for him, for his supporters, for his detractors to be able to kind of separate who's who and what's what. And so in terms of the overall sentiment coming from him is what these people take away the racism and all that. The other thing they're asking for is essentially, you know, yeah, a better go for the white man, for these rural white communities that feel they've been utterly displaced by minorities and liberals and communists and socialists and Marxists um, over the years. And I think it gets kind of, um, it gets complex for the president. How do you, I mean, how do you send a message to your base saying, I've still got your back, by at the same token saying these groups who may not represent you directly, but share the ideology that you and I are talking about, um, how do I condemn them at the same time? I think it potentially poses a big problem for him in that sense. I think too, that it goes to the whole, um, the left are a bunch of over-the-top progressive PC, you know, social controllers, which is very much part of his narrative as well. It's very much part of Steve Bannon's narrative, his advisor, chief strategist. It's very much part of the far-right media narrative that the the leftists, the progressives are trying to exert control over American society, that people can't say what they think, they can't do what they want, uh, and that part of that is removing these statues. It's become symbolic that your your history um, is taken away because the PC brigade says it's intolerable. This is not my view. This is a view that is put forward by this particular wing of the media. It's a wing of the media that we know Donald Trump consumes. Uh, And so in part, it's that place to his base as well, him being seen to reject being forced to do things by a a PC portion of society. And that tweet that he sent out the day after of a Trump train literally running over a CNN reporter, which was later deleted, is totally indicative of that. I think the thing that worries me more deeply is that these groups on both sides are not going away. Um, It's very muddied by some more moderate, like it or not, viewpoints, i.e. the white man's not getting a fair go, Um, we don't want racism in our community, to the much further... Um, extremes of I'm going to fight by whatever means necessarily, be that with a gun, be that with a baton, be that with a car to defend what I believe in. It's really unfortunate that there's that element to it. But the problems at the root of this are not going away. And I think there's something America has to face up to. And I think the thing that's really sad me, this sounds ironic and awful, is there was an amazing outpouring of, um, of you know, condolences for Heather Heyer, the woman that was killed, and a real show of unity from this community in Charlotte. And I must admit, I'm quite jaded because I've seen this happen in every community where there's been a mass shooting, where there's been some kind of tragedy, and it changes nothing. Um, and it's all fine for a community to band together uh, in their in their section and that's and that's great for that city but what if these groups do come back um you know then what happens and it just becomes again that more polarized thing and someone needs to be trying to reach across the aisle as unpalatable as that may be i think to try and work out what is at the root of all this stuff because it's just solidifying people more and more into their extreme viewpoints um and it doesn't seem like with this president it's going to get any better. Well, And we saw, didn't we, throughout the election campaign and when Donald Trump won the election, starkly, that 
there are polarised groups in American society who cannot, if not tolerate each other, even talk to each other or understand yeah. each other in any way, shape or form. And I remember on election yeah, yeah, and that sense on election night that from Hillary Clinton's supporters that their country had been taken over by aliens. That was the thing mm. that I was struck by most, that they just didn't get it. They didn't get why people voted for him. They didn't understand them. They, they just think they're fruitcakes and they don't want to talk to them about it. And here we are coming up on a year later. Oh God. Things aren't getting, getting any better. That's pretty clear. And one of the other things that strikes me about these, these groups is that they do travel. A lot of the people who were participants in the Charlottesville violence were coming from out of town. Um, we know there are more protests lined up for this weekend in different parts of the country. Uh, we've seen councils trying to sort of act under the radar to take statues down that might be provocative but not allow it to sort of play out publicly in an effort to try and avoid some of this violence. Connor, the president here, it's his role, right, to be the unifying figure. How does he do that in this political climate? I think the last few days give a really dangerous insight into where Donald Trump is at politically. Um, I think it's all very well to be appealing to your base when you're trying to mobilise people and get them out to an election. But when you're the president, you're supposed to be governing for the entire country. And when you make statements like this that appeal to what probably at best 10% of the people in the Republican Party, we've had mainstream people like um, the leaders in the House and the Senate, as well as former presidents, come out and condemn this. And Donald Trump needs allies, not enemies at the moment. He's struggling to get his agenda through. He's just, you know, um, royally annoyed a huge part of the country. And I think he needs to make the transition from campaigning and appealing to his base to recognising that he is now the president and he needs to speak for the entire country. I think that's a great point. And I think what we saw from him when he gave his statement re reversing back to his original point of view that it was sort of everybody's fault or more than one side's fault was his utter fury and rage at being sort of backed into a corner. He was really lashing out. I've never seen him like that. And it just seems to indicate a sort of coming apart at the seams of the president and the administration in part, that he he's still struggling to get his message across. He's struggling to unify the White House, the party, the country. Everyone's on him for everything. And we know that he doesn't take criticism well, uh, that he wants to be viewed positively and there is just a, not a lot of positive around for Donald Trump right now. Mm. One of the few, oh, I don't want to say good, but I suppose like minor reliefs that happened this week though that Donald Trump has interpreted as a positive is that North Korea has backed away from plans to launch missiles into the waters surrounding Guam. We came very close to what felt like a, a very tense, very heated situation late last week. And I know here in the Bureau, we were sort of checking our phones and wondering if we would be expecting some really devastating action over Fire this and weekend. Fire fury raining down. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, that seems to have fizzled somewhat. 
Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is um, emblematic of the Trump administration, though, isn't it? You have these flashpoints, and it it builds up and builds up and builds up, and then you, it sort of hits a climax, and then it cascades, and it it looks like everything is going to explode, figuratively or literally, and then it just goes away, and the narrative changes to something else entirely, and it, it sort of eventually comes back around to the original issue, North Korea being this particular one, and it will come back. I mean, it might come back as soon as, you know, the coming week. But it's kind of like as soon as he stops talking about it, it goes away. Um, And he hasn't been talking about it because Charlottesville. And therefore, Kim Jong-un, wise Head has prevailed. Amazing to be saying that. <laughs> Do you ever think or you'd say wiser that? Wiser head. <laughs> you know, some uh, out of two heads, one head decided maybe that wasn't a good plan. Mm. Donald Trump was distracted with this awful domestic situation that's been playing out, mm. and North Korea's kind of gone. Well, maybe it's not worth doing right now. Could create a few problems, um, and it's sort of died off. It's really interesting how that narrative ebbs and flows and I think we've seen it repeatedly on everything over the last 12 months. I think in a way it's probably because like he started it with words so if he shuts up maybe it stops Mm -hmm. but the North Korea issue I think it's sort of it's a real apex now of um, essentially the, the fundamental issue remains which is that the United States particularly Congress do not want um, North Korea to have the capacity to have an intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear warhead on it. Um, that is exactly what Kim Jong-il is moving towards. China's said cool it for now and looks like he has. But the fact is they're still making much more rapid progress toward that towards that ends than anyone thought. Um, and Donald Trump has to do something about it or accept that North Korea is a nuclear power, which would be, I imagine, utterly unpalatable for him to do during his time. Um, so, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep coming. It's going to keep flaring up again. Yeah, the administration was even saying today that a nuclearised North Korea was unacceptable. But what are they going to do about exactly. it? I mean, that's the thing. You can't, unless China, unless China does, unless Trump does fall through on his plans to use the US-China trade relationship to bully Beijing into doing something with North Korea. But again, does America really have as much leverage as Donald Trump seems to think? Well, yeah, and any capacity for deal-making along the lines of the Iran nuclear deal um, is fraught because, obviously, firstly, Iran is supposedly meeting its commitments, but Donald Trump is saying that they're not. So that sort of lends weight for North Korea to not do something similar because they'll say, well, why would we bother doing that? They're they're trying to do it and you don't even believe them. Um, But secondly, if the US is going to have some sort of negotiation with North Korea and get them to freeze or taper down their nuclear program, the US will have to make some substantial concessions um, along the lines of not having joint military exercises with Seoul and those sorts of things. And right now they're not willing to do that either. Mm. We're running very tight on time, but just before we go, Connor, you spent some time this week um, with the family of Justine Damond, the Australian woman who was shot by uh, police in Minneapolis. How is the family coping with this? And what has been the latest reaction from authorities? Does it feel like this investigation is getting any closer to some sort of answers? 
it still feels like it's got some way to go in terms of the investigation. We know that um, the people who look into police actions got a search warrant to get the smartphones of the two officers who attended that night. Um, but um, the local authorities have come out and said that they expect that it's going to be a long time before um, they decide if they're going to press charges against the officer because they know that this will be an incredibly charged case on so many levels, police violence, racially... Um, gun control. It's just there's so many different elements to the story. Um, so they, they're going to take their time. In terms of the memorial, it was just incredibly sad. Um, you know, you had a 40-year-old woman in her pyjamas going out to try and report a sexual assault who was widely loved in her community, a good Samaritan, just famous for rescuing local ducklings in her area. She was just a person that everyone liked. And you had her family there travelling from Sydney. Um, in the week that she was, everyone was supposed to be travelling to Hawaii for her wedding. They were instead in Minneapolis at her memorial. One of her bridesmaids was there at the memorial remembering her. We heard from her fiancé as well. Um, so as well as the incredible sadness, the other thing, sense that I was left with was how different the US and Australia can be at times. I spoke to a lot of people in her community in Minneapolis, Americans who'd gotten to know her and like her, and they had been monitoring both the Australian and the US coverage of this event and were quite taken by how in Australia, a lot of people, a lot of the commentary was around the gun culture in the US, but in they hadn't found anything like that in the local media. And they were sort of a bit despairing that um, that argument's not even being had anymore. Mm. That's all we have time for this week. Hopefully we'll be back next week with some better news and a few more lulls. Thanks for joining us.